Cool. So last week, we really began diving into this part of the book of Ephesians, which we're going to spend the next few months on. And what we said was that this whole thing is this beautiful house called the glorious gospel. Verses 3 to 14 is one big, long, exciting run-on sentence. And it's like this big, beautiful house. And each week, what we're doing is we're taking a tour through this house that isn't just a house out there for someone else, but this is actually a house we get to live in, we get to move into. And we go room by room by room, week by week week and look at a new facet, a new aspect of this glorious gospel. So that's what we're doing. I want to begin today with a quote that really got my attention when I read it by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer um, is a a very experienced and wise pastor and theologian. Um, He wrote a book that I feel like every Christian at some point before they die should read called Knowing God. It's It's a great book. And in that book, here's what he says. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of blank. And having God as blank, hmm, what could it be? Right? He's saying, if if you want to know, you got to find this out. He says, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Blank is the highest privilege the gospel offers. Whoa. Okay, so think about this. J.I. Packer, this wise, experienced, godly man, is saying, if you want to understand how well someone understands Christianity, if you want to understand the thing that should animate their thoughts and worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, look at blank. So what's the blank? What would it be? What would be the thing? Right, he says, find out how much he makes of blank and having God as blank. What is it? What could it be? Here's what it is. Let's read the quote without the blanks. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. It's adoption. It's being welcomed into God's family. It's having God as your father. It's the thought of being God's child that J.I. Packer says that is the thing that should control your thought and your prayer and your worship is that God has adopted you as his child. Now, maybe you just haven't thought in those terms very much. Maybe you've just thought about how God's forgiven you, and that's wonderful. Maybe you've thought about how God has cleansed you and purified you. That's a wonderful thing. You may feel like, you know what, it's amazing that God has removed my shame from me and God has you know, made it where I'm no longer afraid. Well, well, why is all that possible? Because God has adopted us into his family. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to speak in terms of our new forever family because that's really what this is, right? Some of you are involved in adoption and uh, you talk about how you want to create an opportunity for these kids who are in difficult situations to find a forever family. Here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, we have a forever family. And this new forever family is what we're going to look at. Then we're going to look at how we got this forever family and then why God gave us this forever family. That's what we're going to look at here together today. So let's, let's pray together and, and dive in. Father, we thank you for this highest privilege that the gospel offers of adoption. God, we pray that 
the truth that you have adopted us in, that you've welcomed us as your sons, that that would control our worship and our prayers and our whole outlook on life. God, give us a deeper understanding of that, but God, even more, warm our hearts with it. Give us a deeper affection for you because of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So first, we have our new forever family. We're actually picking up at the last couple words of verse four, where it says, in love. As we said, this is just one big long run on sentence, and that phrase, in love, could very well be with verse four, but it also fits with verse five, that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Maybe your translation says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We have been adopted as sons if we've put our faith in Christ. We are given full rights of a son as his child. See, this is what adoption means. Uh, Some of you have experienced this horrible thing uh, where you've adopted a child, and maybe you have some biological children as well, or maybe you have a number of adopted children and, and one looks less like you than the others or that sort of a thing, and people will ask you a horrible question, won't they? They'll say, now, now which of these are your real kids? Pause. Don't ever ask that question. Why? Because if you ask an adopted parent, which of these is my real kids, what are they going to say? All of them. They're all my real kids, right? This one that I've adopted has no fewer rights than the one that was born biologically, has no, le- has no more or less of my affection. They're a full member of my family. They are a full child of mine. That's what it's saying. In Christ, because of God's love, we've been predestined for adoption. We have the full rights as his kids. That's an incredible thing. And, and this is actually significant in verse 5 where it says, he predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ. Now, there's lots of places in the scriptures where something will speak in kind of male language, and it's appropriate to say, you know, instead of just brothers, it's brothers and sisters. That's a fine way to think about it. But what's fascinating about this particular thing is what this is saying, this is so countercultural in the first century. Because in the first century, the only people with rights as children, the only people with a real inheritance that was to come were sons were the males. Do you get what Paul's saying? He's saying in Christ, because of Christ's love, he's chosen all of us who are in Christ, men and women, to be sons. Doesn't mean we become male. It means we have the full rights that sons have. This is a remarkable thing. What higher privilege could there be than to be called a child of God? That's what we are by faith in Christ. He's given us that right. He's adopted us as his sons. I love this quote by Matt Smethurst. He says this, The gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. Many of you have thought about Christian faith as it relates to a courtroom, right? We're guilty before God, and and God can prosecute us because of our sin, and God is the judge who is right to condemn us because of our sin, and that's absolutely an appropriate metaphor. That's an appropriate image. But this is why this is even better. 
It's not just that God says, okay, you're not guilty. Okay, you don't have to be punished for your sin. It's that actually God moves in with the warmth of a father and adopts us into his family. The gospel changes heaven's courtroom proceedings from a criminal trial to an adoption ceremony. That's our new forever family. That's why we call ourselves brothers and sisters of Christ. Brothers and sisters with one another because of our new forever family. Well, how did we get this forever family? That's the next question. How did, how did we get this? How did we get this forever family? Well, it says there in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That phrase, purpose of his will, uh, most translations translate it as kind intention of his will or good pleasure of his will. Where it says purpose, right? We think purpose is this very like dutiful, according to the purpose of his will. But really that, that word has a lot more warmth to it. According to the kind intention of his will. According to the good pleasure of his will. So according to God's good, loving pleasure, he predestined us, it says, for adoption. Now, some people will hear that word predestined and go, ooh, I don't like that. That makes me nervous. That makes me uncomfortable. I get that. But here's the thing we got to see. It's in the Bible. This isn't something that men created. This isn't come out of some theological system. It comes from the scriptures, right? We can't get rid of it unless we get out scissors. So what does it mean? Well, here's a definition of this Greek word. It means to decide upon beforehand to predetermine, to mark out before. So this fits with what we read in verse 4 where it said that one of the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places is that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose or the kind intention of his will. God chose before the foundation of the world to take a bunch of rebels, a bunch of blasphemers, a bunch of idolaters, a bunch of people who built their life on anything and everything but him. And before time began, God marked them out, set his love on them determined in advance that no matter what they did that would disqualify them from his love, he would still love them. That's how we got this forever family. Now, here's what I know, and, and uh, Tim Keller has this helpful analogy. He says, you know, this doctrine of election and predestination is like a hard candy. Like, you know those strawberry candies that have the gooey center? And you put one of those in your mouth. If you try to bite it right away, it hurts, right? Like breaks your jaw. But if you let it sort of soak and dissolve in your mouth, it actually is unbelievably sweet. And that's how the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination is. When you first hear this, right, some of you right now are like, this feels like it's breaking my jaw. Right, it's like getting in a hot tub, right? You get in a hot tub and at first it's like, oh, that burns. Then after a while you're like, ooh, this feels good. Right, it's the same thing. And so I, w- I want to encourage you, if it feels like you're breaking your jaw on this, if you feel like, gosh, this is hard, it gets sweeter. And I'm going to try to help today to help you understand the sweetness of this truth. This is not just an esoteric thing that's out there that, oh, yeah, I guess we could believe that. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, one of those stupid questions. Did Adam have a belly button? You know, like, 
Who cares? That's not what this is. This is precious. This is sweet. This is soothing. This is life-giving. This is motivating for mission. This is motivating for service. This is motivating for evangelism. This is a sweet thing. Now, what I know is that some of you, like I said, this rubs you the wrong way, or you have questions. Maybe it doesn't even rub you the wrong way. You just go, I need to understand more. And so we've created a class for you about this. Uh, We talked about it last week, and we'll put the information up again. It's Introduction to Reformed Theology, What the Bible Teaches About How God Saves Sinners. And so Reformed Theology is kind of the name of the kind of tradition within Christianity that has particularly taught and emphasized these biblical truths. And so we want to just kind of create a space. It's five weeks. Me and Seth are going to teach it and would love for you to be able to come and ask questions and wrestle through these things because we feel like it really does take five weeks to wrestle through it. Um, and so we're kind of introducing it here on Sundays and, uh, and really want you to be able to dig deeper if you want to, okay? I said last week, if this is frustrating for you, let it begin the conversation, not end it. So now I'd say, let it continue the conversation, not end it. What does the Bible say about election and predestination? Well, I want to point out three things that this particular passage in Ephesians says, as well as show you some other places in Scripture. There are many, many, many. I'm not just, you know, cherry-picking the only ones that talk about this, but I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to show you all the verses that talk about this. But three particular things that this passage in Ephesians tells us that the rest of the Bible supports about the Bible's teaching on election and on predestination. Here's the first one, is that God did the choosing. Look at verse 4, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. Do you see? I mean, this is just right here in Ephesians. It's God that's doing the choosing. It's God that's doing the deciding upon beforehand. It's God that's doing this. This isn't the only place the scripture says this. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 says this. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. So first, the scripture says God did the choosing. Second, Scripture says that God's choice was made before the world's creation. We just saw that in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes this. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. So before the world was made, before you were formed, Before you had sinned against God and rebelled against him, before you had done anything, good or bad, God set his love upon you. That's what the scriptures say. Number three, God's choice was not based on any merit within the elect. So get this, God did not look into the future and go, who are the people that are the most deserving? Who are the people that will be the most humble? Who are the people that will be the best behaved? Who are the people that are going to be the most kind of into me? And I'll somehow pick them before they pick me. That's not what happened here. God's choice was not based on merit within the elect. It was based on his good purpose, on his kind intention, on the purpose of his will, it says in verse 5. Not merit. 
There's a passage in Deuteronomy 7 that talks about this, where God has chosen the people of Israel. And here's what it says in that passage. It says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, same language, to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And you go, well, why? Why did he do that? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Right In our verse, in Ephesians 1.4, it said that we should be holy and blameless before him. In other words, we weren't holy and blameless. We were sinful. He chose us, he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Why did we need to become sons? Because we were enemies. And it wasn't because we were more, it wasn't because we were bigger, it wasn't because we were better, it was just because he loves us. You go, well, why does he love us? I don't know, but he does. Isn't that what you kind of want when you ask your spouse, why do you love me? Do you want to hear, she were prettier than all the other girls? You kind of do when you're still pretty. But that plants, well, maybe. Right, if, God, if God loved you when you were lovely, well, what about when I'm not lovely? If God loved me because I was going to be humble. What about when I'm not humble, right? I, I kind of actually take pleasure in that for some reason that I don't fully understand, God loves me because he loves me. God's choice was made before the world's creation. God did the choosing. And it wasn't based on merit within the elect. And, and here's the thing. We're not, get this, what we're looking for here is, is the ultimate reason why we have been adopted. The ultimate cause, right? There are lots of other causes, like I believed in Jesus, I trusted Jesus, I repented of my sin, I put my hope in Christ, I asked to be forgiven, I decided to follow Jesus. Those are real causes that make us Christians and, and, and you know, help us become believers, that's it right? But that's not the ultimate reason. Those are penultimate. Those are secondary. Those are not the foundational reason. What's the foundational reason? See, sometimes people will say something like, well, why are you a Christian? And someone might say, because I received Christ. To which you could ask, well, why did you receive Christ and not someone else? Well, because I admitted my sins. Okay. Why did you admit your sins and someone else didn't? Well, I humbled myself. Oh, so you're better and smarter, more self-aware, more humble? No, 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 I'm not better. I was just willing. Oh, so you're more willing. See, if anything other than God's grace is the ultimate reason why you are a follower of Christ, why you're adopted into his family, then you can't really say, I am what I am by the grace of God alone. Right? If there's some other thing, it's your humility, it's your choice, it's your decision, it's your repentance, it's your whatever, if that's the ultimate reason, then what you should say is, I am what I am almost by the grace of God alone. But none of us would say that who are followers of Christ. When we thank God, we say, God, thank you. When I was your foe, you pursued me. When I was your enemy, you made me your child. Thank you, God. That's the way we talk to God. Why? Because we know that we are saved by grace, that we're adopted by grace. Now, some might 
reasonably say, well, gosh, that doesn't feel fair. Like, like, okay, so before the foundation of the world, no one had done anything, and God decided to set his adopting love on some people. But what about everyone else? Like, that's not fair. Why would God pick them and not? Well, we'll get this. God had three options, right? He could save everybody. He could save nobody. Or he could save some. And in any case, he'd be just, wouldn't he? I mean, if if he said, you know what? I'm going to make it where everybody's saved. I'm going to forgive all their sin on the basis of Christ's death. Okay, he could do that. If he said, you know what? I'm not going to save anybody. I'm not going to adopt anybody. They're all rebels. He could totally do that, right? And he absolutely is free to say, I'm going to save some. It still strikes us as unfair. So maybe, maybe this will help. Imagine you have five friends. And they come to you, and they've fallen on hard times, and they say, you know what, we have this plan. We're going to get back at the system, at the institutions, at, at the man. And we've hatched this plan to rob a bank. And you go, wait, 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 that is a bad idea. You really shouldn't do that. You sh- I'm warning you, please don't do that. That will, has the potential to ruin your life. And even if you succeed, it's really a bad idea. You just shouldn't do that. Don't do it. And they say, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And as they're leaving, you, you grab a bat and you hit two of them on the way out. And you grab them and you tie them up and you keep them from going to rob the bank. And then the three remaining bank robbers, they go, and as they rob the bank, it all goes south. They end up shooting a few guards. They get arrested, and they are on death row. And you go to visit them. Would it be all right for them to say, this is all your fault? You didn't, you didn't save me from this. And you would say what? You go, no, it's your own stupid fault. I told you not to do that. I told you that that was a way of death. I told you that that was not the path you should take. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Does that make sense? Now, we still may go, I don't know if I like that. I I get it. But we have to be faithful what the Scripture teaches, not what we feel about it, right? And here's the thing. This is all in a context of saying, He's chosen you to be his kids. He's adopted you. He's loved you. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Because you were better? No, because he just loves you. And he's called you to a holy calling. He's called you to a meaningful life. He's called you to mission. He's called you to be an agent of reconciliation so that other people who don't know that God loves them yet will find out and will respond in faith. That's the privilege that we have as God's kids. That's how we got our forever family. The question, we've sort of talked about this already, is why did we get this forever family? Well, he makes it explicit in verse 6. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That word blessed is, could just be translated grace, right? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us. Right? Why did God do this? To the praise of his Grace, his glorious grace, his beautiful grace. Why did he do it? Because he knew it would make him look big and great and and loving. Listen, the giver gets the glory. 
We have this weird tradition in, in my wife's side of the family where on Christmas we'll, answer, we'll open presents, right? And, uh, and I'll open a present and everyone will be like, hey, good job. <laughs> Thinking, did you not think I could get it open? Or like, and they're kind of, congr- it's their way of congratulating me on the gift I received. But I shouldn't be the one that gets a good job. Who should? The giver. The one that thought about it and put heart and money and cost into it. They get the credit. They get the glory. We're the recipient of God's grace. He's the giver of it, so he gets the glory. This is a win-win. We get God, and God gets glory. We get adopted into God's family, and God gets the credit, and God gets the praise, and we gather together, sometimes with tears in our eyes and our hearts full, because we say, God, thank you. Thank you that you loved me. Thank you that you set your love on me. Thank you that no matter what I did, no matter what I do, you will not let go of me. Thank you, God. That's the heart of this. So I want to conclude by telling you what difference this has made for me. I don't do this a lot where I get real like, here's for me, and and assuming that what I experienced, what everyone else should experience. But I just want to tell you, this is a sweet truth may feel like the hard candy at first, but it is sweet. In fact, I would say that in, the, in my life as a follower of Christ, I had my conversion where I came to faith in Christ and it was like everything changed about, oh my gosh, God loves me, and it was incredible. And since then, I've had two or three other things where I've learned something, some doctrinal truth that has so come alive in my heart, it almost felt like I got converted again. Now, I'm not saying I became a Christian again, get that. I'm just saying the experience of it. It's sort of like, right, you're walking, it's like I'm walking along with God all the time. This is what we're doing as God's kids, right? We're walking along and he's holding our hand. But there's these moments when God reaches down and he picks us up. He looks in our eyes and he says, I love you, son. And you're no more his son then than you were when he was just holding your hand. But but that's what this truth's been like for me. It took time. It took asking questions. It took wrestling through it. But I want to share with you five ways that this has made a difference in my life. First one is this. I can approach God with confidence. Because God is not mostly judge or even king, but father. We, love, we don't talk a lot about how God's judge. We love to talk about how God is king. Right, in the midst of all these rival kingdoms and rival claims of authority, we talk about God as king. But, but get this, judge and, and king are not the main thing. It's father. Right? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, what did he say? Our father. Why? Because we're adopted. We've been predestined to adoption to himself as sons. That is such good news. And so I can approach God with confidence. I don't have to go, well, God, I've really blown it today. You probably don't love me. No, 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 no. That might be the kind of dad you had. That's not the kind of dad we have. We have confidence. Because God's love for us was never conditional on our good behavior. It was always assuming we would not. And still he loved us. Second difference this has made for me is my relationship with God isn't in jeopardy. Some of you have lived that way. Maybe you grew up in a church tradition that was like that, or maybe just by default you have kind of a guilty conscience. 
And you kind of think, you know, I'm, I, my, my status with God day to day is like, who knows? No, no, no. This, this truth tells you, no. Before the foundation of the world, he set his love on you. Your, your relationship's not in jeopardy. Now get this, your experience of that relationship, your joy and delight and communion with God because you're close to him through obedience, that does depend on how you trust him, how you obey, those sorts of things. But, but your status as his child is not in jeopardy. God started this, he'll finish it. That's what it says in Philippians 1. I'm confident that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. Gives incredible confidence and joy. Here's the third thing. I can take God seriously, but not myself. He's big. I'm small. He's the one that gets the credit. He's the one that had the plan. He's the one that paid the full cost. He's the one to be taken seriously, not me. I'm, I'm, I'm small, I'm insignificant. The only thing I contributed to this whole salvation equation was my sin. So he's big, I'm small. I take him seriously, I don't have to take myself seriously. I have nothing to prove, I have no one to impress. God's loved me in Christ. Here's a fourth thing. I can share my faith without pressure. It's not on my shoulders, right? I I can tell other people about Jesus. I can say, you know what? Even though you've sinned, even though you've fallen short of the glory of God, if you will trust in Christ, you will receive the free gift of, of life in him. You will receive the gift of righteousness. I can tell them, listen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Do you want to believe in him? Believe in him. You'll have eternal life. I can do that. Without, oh, but what if I say it wrong? Well, what if, what if I say something and they say, yeah, well, what about, and I go, uh, 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 I don't know. Right, without this truth, what do you do then? Well, I guess they're going to hell because of me. Because of you? No, 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 you're small. It relieves the pressure. I can share with confidence. I can share with boldness. Most of the missionaries and church planners through history embrace this truth. And they did it because they said, you know what? My whole thing is not on the line. I just get to talk about the free grace of God. And whoever will responds. Here's the fifth difference this has made for me is that I can obey because I want to. God's love changes my heart. See, some of you might think, well, gosh, but if I'm chosen before the foundation of the world, before I did anything good or bad, and no matter what I do, it can't separate me from God's love, then why would I obey? That's an interesting and a valid question. But here's the thing that that reveals. That reveals, if you're asking that question, it reveals that your obedience is only because you're afraid of God. I better obey because if I don't, then I'll be out. I better obey because if I don't, he won't love me. I better obey because, oh, God's, you don't want to make him mad. Now listen, is it right to fear God? Yeah, it's the beginning of wisdom. But what this says is we have a deeper motivation to love and to obey, and it's not the fear of God, it's the love of God. 
God has so loved us that he's made us his own, that he's made us new, that he's adopted us into his family, that he's given us the privilege of representing him, of being holy and blameless, and now I can obey him because I want to. My chains fell off. My heart went free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Not because I had to, because I wanted to. God changes your wanter. Isn't that what you want to do with your kids? Like, you are kind of like, I don't care why, just obey me. But you do care, don't you? Wouldn't you love it if they didn't obey you because they were afraid of discipline, afraid of time out, afraid of a spanking, afraid of a scowl? That's not why you want them to obey. You want them to obey you because they love you. And that happens when you realize God's loved you that way. This is a sweet truth. This is a soothing truth. Now, like that hot tub... If you stay in this too long, this is the only thing you ever think about, the water gets a little murky. You get a little inward focus. You don't think about other people outside the tub who need to experience this. That's a danger too, but for most of us, we just need to sit in this tub for a little bit. This beautiful picture of God's adopting love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. for your pursuit of us. God, we thank you because you're the one who gives it. You adopted us. You brought us in. God, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. All we can do is say thank you. God, thank you for changing our hearts. Thank you for giving us confidence and freedom. Thank you that we don't have to be slaves to fear anymore because we're your children. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen.